Welcome to Insightful Leaders. I'm your host, Ryan Stewart, and this is the show where I interview proven leaders in the customer insights and CX space who share their stories, strategies, and insights to drive meaningful change at your organization. Our guest for today's episode is Karen Munger. Karen is Vice President of Customer and Market Insights at Salesforce, an accomplished author of three books, Listen Up, How to Tune Into Customers, Turn Down the Noise and Working from Home, Making the New Normal Work for You, and Success with Less, Releasing Obligations and Discovering Joy. There's also a new book that's on pre-sale now, Success from Anywhere, Create Your Own Future of Work from the Inside Out. Not to mention, Karen's a TEDx speaker that has been featured in Forbes, regularly writes for Thrive Global and ZDNet, and has been named as one of the top 20 thought leaders in the world by Thinkers360. Her high-impact keynotes help organizations to access the future of work via innovative insights around the voice of the customer. Karen, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Super excited to dive in, uh, given the diversity of your background. So... First question I've got for you and first, first place I want to go. In your new book, you talk a lot about the big impact questions that should get asked inside organizations. And for those that haven't read the book, do you mind sharing, first of all, what it is a big impact question is and also, you know, how customer insights team can use it every day? Big impact questions point us in the direction of how things work and What's so critical when we're asking this big impact question in the context of connecting with our customers is it's a question that every organization needs to ask right now because of how much has changed over the past 18 to 24 months. And that big impact question is, who is your customer now? And the reason that's the big impact question is because your customer is anyone upon whom your success depends, anyone who has a choice about whether or not they're doing business with you. And I'm finding for every organization, that definition of who your customer is now has changed in some way, shape or form recently. Interesting. And I'd imagine that that probably also that that exact same mental model and the idea of the big impact question could also imply to internal teams. It could. That's such a great call out. And I'm glad you mentioned that because a customer is all about a key stakeholder. And when I shared that definition of the customer, you know, anyone upon whom your success depends, you're right. We all have internal customers as well. And the big impact question is equally effective in that internal stakeholder context. So in your experience around the big impact question, how often are you seeing that organizations need to come back and readdress it and, and, you know, put some formal research hours into it? Or how often do you suggest that they do it? Well, so often in the world of customer experience, we use that phrase about moments of truth or moments that matter. And in a sense, that concept is true of asking the big impact question as well. And what happens is, Most organizations don't have a catalyst, a spark, something that reminds them to revisit that big impact question. And I find that question is best asked when there's been a significant disruption. Now, in your business, that could be a a new competitor. You know, it could be a new product. Those are great examples. Other catalyst events that might cause you to pause and need to ask that question are 
Perhaps you've just gone through a merger or an acquisition, or you've introduced a new buyer that you're trying to engage more deeply. Those are all moments to take a pause and to ask that question. Interesting. I also saw that you talk about asking another question, the genius question. What's the origin story of that? I feel like there has to be a story to unpack there. Well, when I think about genius, you know, I don't know if you've ever perhaps been out, you know, you're at the beach or you're taking a walk or, you know, you're at the pub with friends and just all of a sudden this idea comes to you or a solution to a challenge that you've been facing. And you you have that moment where you think, ah, that was a moment of genius, right? We all have those. And I think about how can we tap into our genius more consistently or know when we're when we're on a moment of genius that maybe we're sharing within our organizations. And so the genius question was inspired by one of my favorite entrepreneurs. She built a, a significant size business simply by asking the genius question. And it's this. How could we make this easier? And the genius of that question, because so many times I'll hear people ask internal and external customers, how could we make this easy? Or I see people launch significant portfolios of ease of doing business programs. The challenge with easy is it sets an expectation and easy is a destination you might not ever be able to reach in your organization. I mean, if you work in the highly regulated industries of healthcare or finance, for example, or, or even technology where complexity can be a function of that, that business model, easy might not be a realistic destination. You might not be able to realize that outcome. The genius of how could we make this easier is it invites iteration. It invites progress at a little, a little at a time, and it invites your customers and key stakeholders to join you in that journey of slow and steady progress. So we can all find ways to make things easier and to take something away. And that sets a more realistic expectation. It helps us focus on being able to do the doable. Yeah, interesting. I've also seen, you know, um, I I get exposed to a wider range of companies and, and their data on customer experience. And I've seen quite a lot, particularly in, you know, financial sectors um, around retirement or banking or investment products where they've relied on asking their customer base a net promoter score question, a very measurable and consequential number of responses that say, I don't recommend these sorts of products to companies. Sorry, to my friends and family. So, you know, although the genius question might not directly relate, it seems like the elements that you're using there around the genius question can be applied to just even take a step back and think about how realistic is this measure that I'm using to try and um, assess my company's health when it comes to the experiences that we're delivering. That reminds me of, of Ashley Revel. Ashley Revel, you, you may or may not know Ashley's a guy next door kind of a person. And he was out at the end of work one day, you know, having a couple pints with his pals at the pub. And, you know, a certain amount of bravado took over, right? This, you know, big ideas of, you know, <laughs> delusions of grandeur and disrupting life. And and Ashley put forward this question. He said, what would happen if I went to Las Vegas and I bet my life savings on the spin 
of the roulette wheel. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? What if I won? Wouldn't that be so cool? And after I left the pub, he started thinking about it and he, he decided he was going to do it. And, and Ashley actually did. He ended up getting rid of all of his earthly possessions. Uh, he had a BMW. He had a nice watch. Golf clubs sold all of it. By the time he went to Las Vegas with his friends, he only had on the clothes that he was wearing, which was a rented tux. And he literally went into the casino and went all in on a single number. Now, I have a question for you. I know this is your show and you get to ask the questions, but if <laughs> Ashley were your friend, would you advise Ashley that this is a good decision? So... You might not know this about me, but I have quite a, a technical background. I was originally uh, an engineer and I heard you say bet it all on one number. And I happen to know there is 36 numbers on a roulette wheel plus a zero. So the odds of him hitting one number is like one in 36, one in 37. And I would absolutely say, Ashley, this is a terrible idea. And what's so funny about that is this is what businesses do with net promoter score, isn't it? You decide to bet everything about your company on a single number. And just like, by the way, Ashley Rebel is a real person. That is a real story. And that really did happen. I'm so amazed when companies decide to go all in with their company's fortune on a, on, on a single number, a single number that most people, just like this spin of that roulette wheel, are uncertain about how they could replicate that outcome. I mean, in Las Vegas, if you spun a roulette wheel, three times in a row. I mean, are you going to be able to predict whether you're going to win or lose? No. And the same happens with net promoter score. People go all in on one number. And what's missing from that is the ability to repeat those results because what's underneath of it is there are so many organizations that do not know with any degree of consistency when you win, why do you win? And when you lose, why do you lose? And most importantly, could you repeat those results with those insights? Yeah, interesting. So um, let me have an attempt at rephrasing that. What you're saying is, and I think what you're saying, by the way, probably as you, you've made the analogy there to the casino roulette, but you can probably make the analogy, you know, not to, to pick on net promoter score alone, but any any single number that you're you're choosing to focus on and, you know, bet the business on. Um, you really need to understand the reasons why behind the score and, and, you know, what's driving that number. Because if you don't have a good understanding of that, then what is the point of the number and what recourse do you have to do anything about it if the number is to shift in a certain direction? Yes. And I think a better question is something called the social promoter score, which is, did you recommend us to whom and on what basis? And here's why I think that social promoter score question is so powerful. It's because for all of us, there's a difference between what we intend to do and what we actually do. I mean, if I asked you right now, you know, do you intend to eat vegetables today or do you intend to have healthy habits today? Your answer would be yes. Do your actions match your intentions? You know, not always. I mean, there's always the classic of, you know, your dentist asks you if you floss every day. You know, of course, we all say yes, right, whether we do or not. <laughs> the same is true with customers. If I ask you what you're going to intend to do, I don't know what I'm going to do with that information. If I actually ask you what you actually did, wow, that's a rich insight. I'd rather know what you actually did than what you're intending to do. Yeah, and, uh, and we will, we'll link this in the show notes, but there is also an interesting article. It might be a couple of years old now. It might have been in the Wall Street Journal. I hope I'm remembering that correctly. And the title of the article was 
the dubious management fad that is sweeping corporate America. And and it was making a lot of similar points to what you're making here. It was particularly focused on net promoter score and saying, you know, it's it's crazy that we're focusing on one number and is that number even correlated to the business doing well? And there was quite a number of, of CEOs and um, well-versed people that were quoted in the article and, and they're essentially the takeaway from the article was unless you're really focusing on what is driving that number and really understanding um, why customers were or weren't likely to recommend, then um, this is probably all for naught. But yes, I, I like how you're framing as well of instead of asking them a theoretical of would you, how about we ask them have you and, and delve into that number a bit deeper. Would you versus have you? That's such a that's such a powerful way to summarize that. Yeah. So let me go in a slightly different direction here. From what I've seen and, and based on discussions that I've had with, you know, companies in the space, their insights function, it still seems to be very much, you know, developing or maturing. Do you have any advice to someone working in insights that is scratching their head, trying to figure out how to create that internal alignment or buy-in on the value of the of customer insights, you know, where, where should they start on that journey? Work with the willing. And here's what I mean by that. When you are trying to get buy-in, whether it's about the value of customer feedback and measurement or any other topic, there will always be people, especially when you are in startup mode or, or transformation mode, right? You're trying to, to produce something different or in new ways, there will always be people who resist that, question it, you know, don't want to work with you. On the flip side, there will always be people who are willing to work with you. You know, a, a way I have discovered to find the willing who want to work with you is when you ask someone, what is it that you would like to know about our customers that you don't know already? And go work with that. Help that person find an answer to their question. It will, it will provide tremendous value. And then work with the next person who's willing to work with you, the person who, who gets it, who wants to be a part of it. And what happens is you start to build a few of those and it helps you get momentum. You get to learn. You get to experiment. You get to add value. And in the process along the way, you'll be building advocates. You'll be building other people in your organization who say, you know, I took a chance on that team or I, I tried out what they have to offer and here's the value I gained. So work with the willing as opposed to the people who are like, did you survey enough people? I don't know. I know how to do this. I could run my own survey monkey survey, whatever that looks like. Work with the willing. Work with the willing. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Concentrating on delivering value early and, and you know, almost create that snowball effect of you deliver a little bit of value and and word spreads and, and you develop a rapport with a wider business. Um, I am almost certain, given your background and, and given what you've achieved in your career to date, that you have uh, a wealth of fantastic insights when it comes to um, customer insights and related fields. Anything that you could share that you'd feel comfortable sharing that you think might be useful for people listening? Well, it, you know, when I start to think about this space that we're all in of connecting with customers and understanding them. I think curiosity is such a powerful tool, right? Getting more curious about how can we all ask better questions? This isn't always about having all the answers and the perfect scores. It's 
what are some new questions that we could ask that help us reveal some new insights and stories that we don't know already? And that doesn't always have to be, you know, questions in a survey. These can be questions that you're asking in a qualitative interview or conversation, but get curious about the story behind the numbers, the story that connects to the people that you serve and how you can capture hearts and minds with those stories that leads to action. And to kind of to tie those last two questions together around, you know, first steps and um, lessons. What about leadership teams and, and getting alignment from leadership teams? You know, let's say for argument's sake that um, someone listening to this takes your advice and, and concentrates on delivering early value to the, the willing audiences out there in their company. Um, that willing audience might not necessarily be the leadership team. And, and I would imagine that for prolonged success, you need alignment with leadership and you need buy-in from leadership in order to win the permission to continue to do what it is you're doing. Any advice that you, you've got around achieving that alignment with the leadership team? Work with the willing is still valid. And I'll never forget the time a senior sales leader in a global company said to me, you know what I would love to know about my customers? I would love to know who is telling us they love us, but isn't spending like they do. I would put account teams and salespeople on those accounts and give that coverage all day long. And we proceeded to follow through on that. We did let him know places where people were, you know, if we're going to use NPS terminology promoters and yet the way that they were spending or the share of wallet we had with that customer didn't reflect how much they were telling us they loved us. That's an example of capturing a leader and adding value in a way that that leader will tell other leaders. You know, that person will then be in your corner when you're there giving that inevitable senior leadership readout of how the scores are trending, right? Or what are the new drivers of, you know, loyalty or satisfaction or whatever that looks like for your business? I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, Karen. I wonder if you wouldn't mind indulging me for a minute and, and taking me on what your perception has been of the emergence of the, of the insights, you know, business unit or job function. Um, because I know, you know, something that I see when I look out across the landscape and I'm interested to see if you see the same is it seems to be an established and, and mature function at some businesses and other businesses are, are really just only getting started and dipping their toes in the water now into creating a dedicated insights or research function at the organization. Um, what's your, what's your perception of the timeline? When did you start to notice that insights were starting to be talked about and, and perhaps even brung, brought internally out off of an agency and into an internal competency for an organization? And kind of what was the driver of that change, do you think? Pain, <laughs> right? It, it's uh, human nature that when we experience pain, we tend to be more willing to make changes. And in businesses, pain looks like diminished margins. It looks like reduced market share. You know, it looks like growth pains. It looks like the pains of new competitors entering your market and taking some of your market share. Very frequently, I see that the catalyst uh, for investing in a more robust customer listening, uh, customer success and customer advocacy function is pain, pain and constraints in the business. And do you think the, the emergence of customer experience and the emergence of the digital way of doing business 
has that had was that really the catalyst for people to even start considering this when you look at it from a macro level and you think about you know a, a a product marketing kind of curve, right? Any kind of product, and the same is true of companies, hits a point of maturity where they tend to get flat, right? And start to decline and come down the, the, other, the other side of the revenue mountain, I guess I'll call it. And that tends to be the point when people start to flatten out and realize they're not growing at the same rate. Or you want to try to introduce a new product to your customers and that fails miserably because your customers don't see you that way. Or maybe it's a service offering, depending on your business. That tends to be a catalyst for people to get more curious and to figure out what's not working. Why is the growth slowing? Why are we not renewing or retaining customers? Uh, Why are we not selling across the entire portfolio or why are we not maximizing at the point of sale? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that before that slowing growth curve being the catalyst for, you know, causing the curiosity and causing companies to ask questions. It it makes you think that those companies that start out life as curious and and make that brave decision to invest in this, in this type of um, work early on really sets them up for success. Yes. And it doesn't always have to be pain. I mean, you can also work on creating upside and showing people what's possible I just find that people tend to unify in times of crisis. And I think about what happens when there is a financial slowdown, right? Whether that's a global macroeconomic condition or something that's unique to your business or industry at that moment in time, is that organizations become very focused on retaining the customers they have, which typically means you need to get closer to those customers and know more about them for that to be an effective strategy. Yeah. And there's always all those stats, right? It, what is it? It costs eight times more to acquire a new customer than retain an existing one. Always a great motivator. Um, last question for you, and this one's at, uh, at more of a strategic level. For anyone right now trying to create an insight strategy for their organization, what are some fundamental pillars that you think should be in that strategy, irrespective of what industry that individual works in? I think it starts with asking people in your business, what is our customer experience strategy? And I've done this. And I think what you will find is that we have very inconsistent definitions across most businesses of the answer to that question. And then if you take it a step further, it's, you know, what is the problem or problems that our customer experience strategy is trying to solve you'll find that very few people know the answers to those questions. And so before you put specific programs in place and figure out, you know, do you need a customer advisory board or some new surveys? And are you going with customer satisfaction or the customer effort score? What I think about is what do we need to know from whom do we need to know it? And how frequently do we need to know this information? And how do we intend to use the feedback that we gather? Yeah, that's really great advice. Okay, on to our rapid fire round. Um, And so in this segment, I'm going to ask you five rapid fire questions about customer insights and about yourself so that people can learn a little bit more about you and about your background and perhaps even go on some similar learning journeys to the ones that you've already been on yourself. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is the best piece of customer insights advice you've ever received? Be willing 
to make changes. No program is relevant forever. Constant reflection. Uh, constant you- willingness to burn the boats. Just because you <laughs> built it and it made you successful doesn't mean it's going to be effective tomorrow. So the longer you hang on to that program that made you famous 10 years ago, the sooner you can step into what makes you famous and relevant now. Yes. It feels like it sits somewhat in a very similar space, at least mentally, to curiosity. What are you most excited about in the world of customer insights right now? That innovation is running rampant because everybody had a reset of who your customer is and how you engage your customer. I mean, there is almost no business on planet Earth or organization on planet Earth that is got the same set of customers that you're able to engage in the exact same way as you were able to on, let's say, 10 February 2020. And this next question is about books, Karen, and I know you've got uh, plenty of books of your own, but I'm interested to know what book would you recommend to our audience and why? Well, certainly beyond the ones I've written, uh, two books I would recommend. One is Outside In by Harley Manning. Uh, Still a fantastic go-to guide for thinking outside in from the customer furthest out into your organization. And the other one would be Life Scale by Brian Solis. And he shares some strategies for how to make sure that you are minimizing digital distraction and continuing the ability to tap into your own creativity and the the value adding motions that we sometimes lose sight of when we are digitally distracted and hopping from task to task. Awesome. We'll make sure that we link your books, but also those two books in the show notes for anyone that uh, wants to be able to go find them and, and get them for themselves. What's an interesting little fun fact about you that most people don't know? I am currently taking tap dancing lessons. (laughs) Tap dancing lessons. That is a little fun fact. What was the motivator for that? I wanted to do something just for fun, not for mastery. And I feel that so many things got so serious in the world and in our lives. And I thought, how could I have more fun? What's something I've always wanted to do and how could I do that? And for me, learning to tap dance is pure play yeah that's amazing i i have a younger sister and i can remember distinct periods in my life where tap dancing was a thing that got done constantly then at some certain age it seemed to have just stopped and never got revisited so i think it's absolutely awesome that you are revisiting um karen folks want to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that you can find me on linkedin and twitter awesome and we'll and we'll make sure that we put links to both of those uh, social profiles in the show notes Karen, this has been very amazing. Thank you. I've, I've actually learned a lot um, doing this podcast episode, so I'm super excited uh, to share this with the world. And I really enjoy diving into the topics and your expertise. And I know listeners will feel the same. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And what's beautiful in our virtual world is that neither of us is suffering from jet lag as a result of this visit. <laughs> <laughs>